people often tell that advice to writers, which is write what you know. I don't know that much. So I'm basically writing questions that I'd like to know the answer to. There were also some artifacts from the British Museum, but they were manifesting in the shape of mold because the mold eats the objects in the storage and then grows again and is constituting the actual material. So I was like, well, it looks different, but technically it could be the same thing. No? Regarding decoloniality and the afterlife of cultural heritage objects, the Goethe Institute and the British Council initiated a project known as Practicing Freedom. It was a transcultural research and artistic project which was conceptualized and curated by artistic directors Amal Alhag and Celine Vent. We are currently thinking of Practicing Freedom as phase one of an even bigger project which we have launched called Lives of Objects, working with cultural practitioners, researchers, museum professionals and existing collaborative initiatives. We have envisioned Lives of Objects to consist of workshops, residencies, panel discussions, lectures, podcasts, artistic interventions and exhibitions. This podcast episode is the first episode of the series. For it, we have invited eminent artists Gala Poras Kim and James Webb to discuss the ways in which we think about the lives of objects through an artistic lens. The two have been breaking boundaries within their own disciplines, rethinking how we present museological objects and artefacts, particularly those with historical, socio-political and spiritual importance. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. I'm your host, Lucy Rowan. Today we are joined by two multidisciplinary artists who have both an affinity with objects, particularly in how those objects are presented and how we interact with the stories and experiences of those objects. Our first guest is Colombian-Korean Gala Porras Kim. Born in Bogota, Gala has been living and working in Los Angeles since 1996. She holds a Master of Fine Arts from the California Institute of the Arts and an MFA in Latin American Studies from UCLA. Through her art, she investigates institutional and linguistic frameworks that define, legitimize, and preserve cultural heritage. She considers how oral traditions or archaeological remains are presented, and in doing so, her work questions the ethical principles of museological conservation while also functioning as an invitation to imagine stories and invest new meanings to artefacts displayed inside museum, vitrines and storage spaces. Our second guest is Stockholm-based but South African-born James Webb, who jokingly refers to himself as the other James Webb, given that there is a 19th century British artist whose marine and landscape paintings make it difficult to sieve through and find the works of this James Webb online. But name confusions aside, James Webb is known for site-specific interventions and installations. His practice often involves sound, found objects and text, invoking references to literature, cinema and the minimalist traditions. By shifting objects' techniques and forms beyond their original context and introducing them to different environments, James creates new spaces of tension. These spaces bind James's academic background in religion, theatre and advertising offering poetic inquiries into the economies of belief and dynamics of communication in our contemporary world. Okay, so I'd like to welcome both Gala and James today for episode 15 of Talking Culture podcast. So to get started, I'm going to ask you both an open question, which is, what combines both of your practices is the repositioning of the agency, personhood, and life back into objects. What was it that initially drew you both to objects in your artistic practices? Thanks for inviting me, Lucy, and I'm glad to have a conversation with James. Um, I think thinking about objects is generally what artists are doing 
all the time, you know, it's like defining material and how it's technically formed, etc. But what drew me to the specific work was to think about how objects were formed, not necessarily materially. How does a context or a regulation or policy or time frame also molds the shape of an object besides just like learning how to mold like clay or something, no? So that's kind of a slippery slope into looking at a lot of not necessarily material itself, but things around objects more than the objects themselves, at least for me. Thanks, Lucy. And wonderful to be with you, both of you and uh, Yugala. I have a memory as a child going to a museum and seeing a label which seemed to explain the object on display. I remember, I think I'd also been to a zoo a few days before or something. But I had the idea that the object was, was imprisoned. It had a catalog number, it had this name, and it had, a, I suppose, a fixed entry point with some kind of academic border control or something. And I remember wondering, like, how would the object describe itself? And I suppose my question that came up was, what would the object want? So that's kind of a formative memory, which I think led to my, my interest in specifically this method of working. It's really interesting you say that because I remember as a kid feeling the same way. You just go into a museum and it's like, does this object want to be stuck next to this other object for eternity? Because they don't get along. Like, ah, now I'm stuck having to be contextualized next to this other. (laughs) But I used to go to museums and they would have conversations as well. I think you were both a lot more sort of introspective than I was as a as a child looking at these things. I think I was just very sort of enamored by how big and uh, amazing everything was rather than asking these questions. But I guess that's why you're both doing what you do now. But yeah, okay, so that's really interesting that this was, you know, something that you were going and then leaving and thinking about. And then I guess I would ask then for both of you, what were what was the first object that you both, you know, started thinking about? Can you remember that at all? I remember if we're going to the source, you know, my dad's a historian. And so we lived in this like tiny colonial town in Colombia. And, you know, most of the archives were in the back of these churches. And so he was there all the time. And I remember he was friends with the priests who ran the churches. And once he told me that we had to go look at this relic, like go on a hike because we're going to go look at the pinky toe of saying something, something. And we have to go because it's very special. You know? And I remember he made such a big deal, like a whole hike. And then when I arrived, it was like VIP session where the priest came out with this beautiful box. And then he slow motion revealed like open and there was a bone. And then I remember that that moment feeling like so special, like, oh, my gosh, this thing has been like here forever. Like it's a test to religion, like it's got a vibe, et cetera. So I thought about that. bone for a long time, which my dad later told me that he had planted there before. And it was a chicken bone that he had just talked to his friend in advance to set it up. And so in a sense, it was just like, it was such a weird moment of break of believing the the story around something and the value and myth and etc. to just being like, oh, it was just the lunch of this guy or whatever that was just set up. So that one I thought about for a long time. And I still think about it I guess back back of the mind when I feel the sense of like aura or or vibration of like awe when you go into an institution just to get down to you know practical thinking again or something. Yeah, and what about you James what was the first object if you can remember? It's hard to remember the first to be honest. I do have another memory of being in high school in an art class and the art teacher hoisted a book it was Helen Gardner's Guide to Art. She had hoisted onto her shoulder and pointed to a print of Guernica and said with a certain amount of authority, this is the most important piece of modern art in the world. To which I remember thinking, well, like, okay, so what are we doing now? <laughs> How do we respond to this? Um, and years later, I, w- I was able to make a work in relation to Guernica at the Reign of Sophia where I invited people to have a moment alone with the painting, and then when they were ready to scream at it, and just as way of sort of responding to this painting. Um, but we can maybe save that for another discussion, that whole work. 
But I think different objects have meant different things to me at different times. And those things have changed, I think, as, as the world changes. But yeah, apart from that particular memory, no one sticks in my object that wouldn't require some long, rambling explanation. <laughs> it's actually funny that you mention um, Guernica and your art teacher saying that this is the most important piece of art. I did a uh, how to talk about art course at the Barbican last year, and that was the first piece of art that we started with. So Essentials. <laughs> she was onto something. She was definitely onto something. Gala, I'm going to come to you next. So you've just opened your exhibition Between Lapses of Histories on the 11th of February at the NUAC in Mexico City. How did that opening go? It was an uh, opening that I really, an uh, exhibition I wanted to make forever. I normally live in L.A. for the most part, but I work with a lot of Mesoamerican objects that have been moved to the U.S., looking at different policies of how it got uh, from the source to where it is now. And so it was the first exhibition I actually had in Mexico. So in a sense, even though there were not that many new works, it was so different to show work there because there were so many layers of like layup of information that was not necessary to do because it was just in the context that it was already set up. And so since those works have normally been shown in the U.S., it's just a different public, you know, that feels differently or looks at it in a new way. So it was a very special one for me. The artifacts that you chose, what exact ones did you choose to present in this collection and why? You know, most of them were my own works. But of course, when we talk about artifacts, I was thinking about this question. I was like, mm, well, I, in theory, I have a lot of minuscule, tiny, tiny particles of artifacts. So, you know, one of the questions that I have in my work is what constitutes the actual work if a piece of it falls off as small as a dust or ash piece like how much of the physical material has to be there to actually be the whole thing you know and so I actually showed uh, artifacts from the Peabody Museum because I collected some dust from the storage where those objects had been have been stored the majority of the particles are stored at the Peabody so there were some of those. There were also some artifacts from the British Museum, but they were manifesting in the shape of mold because the mold eats the objects in the storage and then grows again and is constituting the actual material. So I was like, well, it looks different, but technically it could be the same thing. You know? And then the last one was um, ash from the fire of the Rio Museum that we collected after the fire. So uh, some artifacts that were transformed into ash shape after that fire. <laughs> I mean, the mold piece in particular, I thought was fantastic. And, you know, something that I thought you made mold look so beautiful. I'm almost <laughs> really, really aesthetic. And I was trying to think about my um, the mold in my bathroom, if I could maybe you know <laughs> think about it in the same way. But I mean, it's such a nice way of rethinking about objects that we don't have to have the object itself. But it is the physical object. It is, I guess, yeah. <laughs> That's the part, I, you know, it's like it's technically made out of the same things, you know. And so what actually is the thing? I was thinking, like, what are the categories that would qualify something as an artifact in the museum? It's like it has to look like it. It has to be a certain amount or it has to be, like, cataloged a specific way. But in a sense, those all of those things are arbitrary to some degree, you know? So besides this show, you've, you've been very busy recently. You've just been to Seville where you have a solo show that was on the 10th of March at the CAAC. So your installation, out of an instance of exploration, comes a perennial showing, which was originally commissioned by Gasworks back in 2022. For those who don't know about this, basically, there's a very, very subtle suggestion that you make in a very respectful way to the British Museum about how they've been ex exhibiting the Fifth Dynasty. Sarcophagus is originally from Giza. You've drawn some arrows on the floor suggesting that the tomb should be rotated by 50 degrees so that the deceased continues to face the east, which is, you know, according to the way in ancient Egypt that, you know, they would have liked to have been buried. You know, so far you've been very, very successful in critiquing the display of ancient Egyptian funerary objects, um, you know, particularly this very extensive collection that the British Museum has. 
Could you explain your process and technique for those who aren't familiar with it and how, you know, you go about contacting the museums? Yeah, I think with the, you know, each museum, of course, has a different approach. But, you know, when I went to the British Museum and I think a lot about conservation and human remains in institutions, it was pretty evident that I had to make a project about the Egyptians because they plan so well for their afterlife. You know, it's like they have extensive conservation directions of how they prefer their infinite life to happen. No, And so in a sense, the, the approach is actually very, very simple is to just read those labels very literally to be like, you know, there is a specific person that knew at some point, what their future would look like forever. And I don't know what that's going to happen to me. So how can I even say that my way is a better way than someone who actually really, really knew? And so it's more like when I was thinking about this specific sarcophagus in the label itself, it says this person, you know, this sarcophagus has windows because it's supposed to be looking at the sunrise. So whoever's inside will look at the view. And I'm like, it's a display question. So it's not, I'm not making big deaccession it and put it back in the ground. It's more like if you just move it in the display, somehow there could be a compromise between like doing what those people actually wanted and also what the museum's intention is to do in terms of teaching people about ancient Egypt. I actually do think that with the Egyptians themselves, you know, they really wanted to be materially conserved super well. And now they have professional curators and conservators actually caring materially for their body meticulously. And so in a sense, I was like, oh, that's a very specific alignment that doesn't happen with other cultures. But in a way, then it becomes more about not putting a hierarchy on like, whose way of existing is better than others, no? Because it's literally on the label. I just literally went to the label and was like, I'm going to take their word for it because I don't actually know. I, I actually saw an interesting interview that you had where you sort of mentioned, you know, the pillows being removed. and Oh, yeah. And then so I, like, what an, what an uncomfortable sort of afterlife. You've gone there with your pillow and this is how you want to be, I mean... I mean, it's just very simple. You know, I think when I, when I, one of the first moments in which I started thinking about like, oh, there's actually an afterlife that people in the past, it, that goes on forever, which is now for our, in our terms, no, was because I saw this woman who uh, had these earrings and they were like Egyptian earrings that were supposed to be the tokens for somebody to like pass the river to the other side or whatever. And she was like, I got this earrings or the tokens or whatever. And in my mind, I was like, there's literally a person stuck at the bus stop being like, I don't even have my token to go to the afterlife because this lady has her in the earrings, no? And so in a sense, it's just, just taking things very literally. That's the approach. Okay, fantastic. And then I would ask, ask you both, so uh, to you, James, as well. So some objects were not intended to have this eternal afterlife that museum exhibitions seem to grant by just constantly being there. Some were intended to just either transcend into a very spiritual sort of form of afterlife or just to completely disappear. What are both of your thoughts on museums and galleries preserving these objects beyond that time span that they were intended to be there for? I don't think a museum is an eternal life. I think it's like a chapter in the story. I think it was Orson Welles who had this great saying, which was, if you want a happy ending, it depends on where you end the story. And I think it's a similar thing for, for objects. For me, it's a case-by-case -case, um, situation. For example, this um, sarcophagus that Gala made such a gorgeous and elegant intervention with, and to just literally give the person and the object what it wants, uh, which is effectively what my, sums up my artwork. I think that there's, there's a lot of possibility in uh, what I think of as this transitory zone of uh, wanting to interview objects, some of them at least, and look at that sort of in-betweenness and understand that the museum is, is just part of the story. My project comes from a position of not knowing. People often tell that advice to writers, which is write what you know. I don't know that much, so I'm basically writing questions that I'd like to know the answer to. So that's something I might ask a museum or ask an object, but um, I, I can't really say more as to what an eternal life might be or look like I'd, I'd say ask the egyptians <laughs> they definitely feel like they know better <laughs> i think they do they must i mean all of those resources like wow do you have any thoughts on that yourself gala 
I think there, you know, eternity is very difficult to grasp in terms of physical material, you know. What, that's why I was thinking about, you know, the museum has so much stuff in the collection. And the part that I really is interesting to me is the ones that somebody back in the day thought that that material was going to do something forever. It's never, ever, ever going to stop doing something. And so what happens now that it's in a museum display like we know, it's like it didn't stop doing the thing that somebody said, thought that it was going to do forever just because now it's in a vitrine. So then what does that mean? I think that in a sense, eternity in this way, in terms of the function that somebody gives them can exist forever until, you know, earth ends or whatever. But but in terms of the museum itself, you know, conservation is a finite thing. I think conservators, there's no way that they can actually preserve something eternally. It's just controlling the rate of decay. You know, they can make something decay faster or decay slower, but it's going anyway. You know, it's like, like I'm not playing, I'm not thinking about like the short term thing. I'm playing the super long game, like, you know, 10,000 years from now timeline, because exactly like James said, you know, the, the period that a, object is in a museum is actually very short compared to most of its life that it has been doing something else no and so to think about like okay museums as we know it is not necessarily all that old is gonna end in a minute like i think that the idea of eternity comes when we think that museums are going to be around forever which we can't anticipate that either no well that the meaning would wouldn't change it's another kind of element of eternity this is the most important piece of modern art in the world like like, okay, that's fine. And I think that's another way of trying to think that something is not going to be changed. But we are living in this contingent situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and also all of those functions are additive. It's not that we can just say, like, one, just because now it's doing something else, it stopped doing something. Because even, you know, ancient things in a museum are museum objects. So in a sense, it's like even current day context is adding to the story of whatever this material could be. I think, James, when you mentioned there, you were talking a little bit about your artistic practice. So you yourself, you have this project, which is called A Series of Personal Questions, whereby you select objects, museums, and even cities to ask them questions about their purpose, representation, and experiences. This project began around eight years ago, and the series focuses on the premise that each object has its own set of experiences. So, I mean, you've spoken a little bit about it, so far, but what initially inspired this series? Uh, well, perhaps for context, maybe I can mention that the work normally consists of the presentation of an object or a space, and then a set of questions that are written for that particular object or space. And these questions are either spoken or broadcast to the object. And that object could be a thing, an artifact, a tool, artwork, or like you said, even a city. Recently, the, the whole North Sea was one of the interview subjects that I addressed. And no answers are written or suggested. And each question is followed by a short pause, a period of silence of approximately 10, 15 seconds. And in this pause, the the object can be thought of as being in a state of response or presence, or I suppose whatever the audience really imagine the object is doing or saying. And I suppose the inspiration comes out of not wanting to impose meaning on an object but rather to ask it a question and, if possible, touch it with nothing other than a sound wave, which is either the spoken voice or the recorded voice. Inspiration, I suppose it's, on the one hand, a kind of interest in the sort of multi-lives of what um, David Abraham, the, the writer, calls the more than human, um, that things are complicated and complex, and, and that really interests me. Um, I'm also... I'm curious as to like the power of uh, and the disruptive power of an unanswered question and how that could make something else happen in a display or in a situation and on a much more personal level the artwork it kind of crystallized when I was going through my own sort of psychological turn at midnight midlife um, and so some people have called this a sort of therapy session with object and that the artist and um, and the object and the audience are inhabiting these sort of roles of maybe sort of analyst and uh, patient. I think that's probably part of the inspiration, but perhaps it's it's also about getting into some situation where meaning can be generated from, from an encounter. 
personally, just listening through the audios that were available on SoundCloud alone, I felt the voices were so soothing just from the way that they were speaking. I felt it was particularly therapeutic, but I think almost it it has like a, an element of mindfulness to it, you know, like really thinking and staying with something and tapping in and asking all those almost like those five sensory questions in that same way. I personally really, really enjoyed the series from what I've experienced of it so far. And then I would go on to ask you, so when you're talking about those questions and having kind of multiple questions and not really giving them an answer, when you're preparing the episodes for every series, would you be able to map out for us sort of your process regarding the selection of the objects, how you write the questions? And then I'll just take an example. Maybe we can work through um, a particular object and get into a bit more detail with it. So you have uh, one of the episodes um, is dedicated to this Roman coin, uh, which you presented at your solo exhibition, Choose the Universe, in 2019. The coin dates back to 70 AD. How did you find this coin? Um, How did you go about researching the coin? And then, of course, your decision in how you presented it. Each version of the artwork is unique. The idea being that, for example, that coin, I'm speaking to that coin, not to all coins from that mint or any money, but that particular one. And the process starts with the object, which in that case is a something like 1,900 and something years old. So still the denarius. I bought it using PayPal on eBay, which would be two concepts that the coin would not have experienced in its circulation, which I thought was kind of part of the sort of an interesting sort of situation there. And with this version and with other other works, I tend to create situations where I need help from others. I tend to help need help from others in most aspects of my life. But art making is a I think a very nourishing way of kind of setting up situations that I can work with other people. So I work with different collaborators and in this case I work with a and here's the word that I find difficult to say, a numismatist, a psychologist, a historian. I even try to speak to my accountant about just these sort of themes of money and histories and all this to try and imagine and look at the what this coin, how to approach this coin, how to approach this coin with respectful curiosity. I love your mention of mindfulness because I think it is about sort of having this communion with the coin, with the, having it as an object of attention. And then to explore these themes, these like wider themes of transaction and value and capital. So yeah, the coin coin is not an exceptional example of the money of the time. Other than it's very interesting in my research that I found found that Vespasian, I think, was very early in his um, career as emperor, and it was the year when the coin was minted that the Romans sacked uh, Beit Hamikdash, the the second temple. Um, so that coin. I think it's plausible to think that that coin would would have known about that. And maybe it's kind of connected to that in some way. That coin would have been lost and found, Would have might have been used to pay a bribe, might have been part of the empire's taxation system. It would have traveled. All sorts of things could have happened. So I'm curious, what did it do? What did it make possible? For who was it the most precious things? And I suppose with that coin and other objects, I, I look at it from all these different um, ways. I try and explore um, its different histories, biographies, or both plural, and um, and then start writing this list of questions with this idea that, with Walt Whitman in mind, the coin or the object contains multitudes, and then develop questions. And there are sometimes sort of over 100, 150 questions per iteration. The idea is that these could increase depending on situation. There'll always be more questions to ask. And so the work could be refreshed in 10 years' time when new evidence comes to light or new kind of avenues of inquiry become more prescient. And I suppose one other kind of technical thing is I look for, I try and write non-polar questions, not yes-no binary answer questions, but things that could provoke an image was something that perhaps the coin or the object might bring up some new research and some new ways of thinking about thinking about it and the world. I think it's interesting you mentioned that that you know the questions with time will evolve, and of course, when we think about research and how that evolves, time maybe if there's more funding in a certain area, then you know we might see more papers being written. And then I'm I'm, I'm wondering just kind of a more spontaneous question off of that: Have there been any episodes that you've gone back and redone as a result of that? 
funny enough, when, um, a couple of years ago, I interviewed five liters of Nigerian crude oil. So this is oil that um, comes from a pipe uh, underneath Nigeria, which I managed to get from a refinery in Cape Town before it was transformed into jet fuel or lubricant or whatever it was, would be transformed into. And the, the interview is with this, these five liters of this transformed matter from ages ago. It's the old, certainly the oldest thing I've ever interviewed. And at the time, the, the oil price had dropped sort of early 2020. And I wanted to ask the oil about it. But then like subsequently, the oil prices shot up again. So like, I always mean to like, I could have phrased that question differently, but I think there is always the opportunity that those questions might need to change, but there hasn't been anything too drastic that I've needed to go and rewrite things. That's very fortunate. But I guess, I guess in general, I think what's so fantastic about this series is it really, really goes to show that even inanimate objects, you know, have so this multi-life aspect to them and have so many different experiences and from so many different perspectives. And even with time, even after, you know, that currency might not, you know, you can't use that currency anymore, but even so you, there was still an exchange of you buying that on PayPal and that whole relationship and experience in itself. And it, it's become something else. It still seemingly has a value. Now it's sort of put into circulation as an art object. So it, it starts gaining other ideas of value and capital and circulation. The next thing I'm going to ask in your series, James, there's one episode, which is actually my favorite episode, where you address questions to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Lyon. So this is a question to both James and Gala. What do you believe is the purpose of a museum or a contemporary art space? And should this purpose remain universal or should it vary based on location, culture, funding? For example, should the British Museum have the same fundamental purpose as the Pergamon Museum in Berlin? Who decides on this purpose as well? Should this be, you know, from a top-down approach as it typically is at the moment? Or should we have a more kind of grassroots going to the local people and sort of asking them what the purpose should be and what would they like to, you know, gain from their local museum? This is such a dense question. <laughs> it's a big one. It's a big one. <laughs> Well, I think essentially for me, the role of the museum is a place to exchange ideas. You know? And so fundamentally, that's what it is. And in a way, you know, a contemporary museum and uh, encyclopedic museum is so different to begin with because contemporary museums in theory hold works that their first function was to be art to begin with. And so it's just beginning its life as an object that is an artwork and it hasn't had the chance to be anything else. And so the clearer function shifts is when there's things that were not meant to be existing or teaching people anything like a plate. It's supposed, it was made to feed somebody and now it's teaching somebody about an ancient culture. That's not what that plate thought it was going to do in its future. And so what I think essentially is more like, each individual museum should reflect the needs of the material that it holds inside of it, you know? depending on what it is. And it's not like historical or contemporary, it's actually per object because each one of those objects has a completely different trajectory in which it got to that specific location. And so even though this might not seem a very practical thing to do because to follow every single provenance back, 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 back into every single object feels very daunting, but in a way, philosophically, as an approach to even try, I think, is changing the essential role of the museum. Also, because we're talking about encyclopedic museums, that's what I'm talking about. Because, you know, as James said, the objects come with multiple lives that they have, and those don't go away. So in a sense, you know, when the when the material comes into a current day museum, it also brings all of the context that it had before with it. It doesn't go away. You know, this was part of the thing. It's hundred different uh, uses before also are available in the current iteration of what it is. And so in a sense, it's more like, how does the museum organize all of these different functions? You know, if a plate was a food plate and then a doorstop and then a historical object, which one do we actually see as being more important than the other when it contains all three in them, no? And so 
I think in a sense in the future is just to think that, you know, all of those objects come with all of the baggage that they they have gone through. And so what I love to think about in terms of like things that people say it's supposed to go in a specific place, you know, thinking like, oh, well, should it go back to a specific? Because many of the questions have to do with like a geography or something. It should go back to this specific geography when that geography is not necessarily the primary definer of what it was. No, And so I was thinking like, can't, if, it, for example, with the Egyptians, if they're supposed to be buried in Egypt and stay there, wouldn't how would it be that by having that material here in the UK, it actually makes this country also part of Egypt because the body came with this country. And so it's not necessarily that it's like Egypt is over there, like the body is in Egypt because it's supposed to be there. So Egypt is actually here, you know, and so it's thinking about how the building itself can mold itself to fit whatever the material actually where it's supposed to be in millions of millions of different iterations of context audiences you know the conservator then becomes a priest who literally is actually doing what the priest back in the day did you know and so it's literally doing the same thing it's just uh, understanding that not only the building itself but we as an audience or like the people who is in this current day is doing multiple roles at the same time you know? so beautifully said I, i'm gonna ruin it by adding any i think also the um the UK's immigration laws that would have to be rewritten a bit, which which I'm all for. <laughs> it's interesting also like with uh, with embassies that that an embassy would become like the South African embassy in London is supposedly like South African ground. So the ground around that sarcophagus, I mean that's Egyptian ground. It's also way more interesting to go see the museum when you're like, whoa, I'm actually in Egypt because this is supposed to be there. You know, I've never been there. But but it's also just following through with that idea. You know, it's like, okay, it doesn't just stop in the imagination. Like, what would that look like as policy that, you know, like conservation methodology or like audio, like label description or like language, everything. I know. But I think you've noted that certain institutions don't read their labels thinking about your series, James, the life of objects and thinking about, you know, the lives that these objects have in your presentation. And when we think about accessibility and how we present objects, so your episodes are presented in multiple languages, Swedish, French, English, and Estonian. For example, you have one episode, which is addressed to a hikimawashi traveling cloak. And that episode is in Japanese. So I was just wondering, you know, did this idea of having so many different languages under one project, did that kind of come from the intention of giving these objects agency and a persona and that you believe that they would be communicating in that language and understanding that language? Or or maybe both. Um, it could also be because of kind of trying to move away or counter this very Anglo-centric discussion that we do have around objects and museum discussions in general. I think that those things are interconnected. For me, the idea of asking the object, which is attempting to go beyond the label and the imposed names and all the enforced anonymity that many objects have, for me, that's a type of agency. Um, mm. And it's about accessibility for the audience and the object, I suppose. Absolutely, to counteract sort of Western hegemonies and open up a more polyphyletic view of culture and history. I mean, that's that's all there. With the Hikimawashi Kappa cloak, I wanted it addressed in Japanese as that was a language that the cloak would have grown up with. So that that element is part of the of the work. It's not always possible to have it in whatever language that, I mean, I suppose addressing the coin in Latin would have been quite a labor. But also so with the Hikimawashi cloak, it's also also addressed in French and English because those are the languages of the Caddist Foundation, which are the, the collection that are custodians of the piece. And like with the thought I could remake or rewrite questions in the future, I'm also open to re-recording or recording in more languages should it be useful to the artwork. I want an accessibility for the audience and where possible something that could connect conceptually to the to the object yeah and it's, it's again it's case by case it's how how it sort of works out and um what i know what the possibility is and also to importantly to work with voices that are not my own and there's something there's a i suppose a another layer that i can since i'm working collaboratively with 
different researchers and writers and, and voices that I can work in these other languages. And that makes the project bigger. Gala, sort of thinking about this accessibility. So, you know, James has sort of explained the reasons and how he makes his work more accessible, particularly to local audiences, you know, putting something in that language because that's the language you're presenting in or thinking about the language of the object itself. When you're preparing for an exhibition and the presentation of objects, do you focus more on the object itself and how you want to present that? Or do you also take into account, you know, making that more accessible to the local audience as well? Yeah, I think, it, again, it's a case by case because, the you know, for example, when the work has to do with a specific person who is in a collection, then it would be addressed to a specific person. But many of the works take shapes in these like letters that I write to different people in that work at institutions. So the original work is in whatever language that letter would be written. So like there's one in Portuguese that would be sent to the museum in Rio about that napkin with the ash or in Korean to the lady who worked in the Korean museum, etc. But in the end, they're translated for the audience to actually understand what those letters are. And, you know, the letters, if you read all of them, back to back to back to back, it's essentially the same letter. It's just changing the specific of the material, the specific of the collection, the specific of the circumstance, but it, you know, this essentially all of them, again, the same. It varies based on the circumstance of the specific project. You know, the only time that was a really specific question was with this work I made for the Kwangju Biennial that was trying to contact this person to find out where they would rather be other than in a museum. And so first we were like, oh, maybe we should find a shaman that might be able to contact the afterlife then. But we're like, this person probably doesn't even speak that language because it's so old that it was pre-Korean language or whatever. And so how do we even know, you know? And so then, then at that point, it's just thinking about what information is available and what information is not available. And so when there is a lack of information, then I feel like there's a placeholder. So I hope that, is not fully defined and set, you know, whatever language it's set in or the specificity of what that object might need because we don't know yet. And so it's it's more like I'm using these specific tools for now because that's what we have until something else allows for a new information and a new version to exist. What's actually interesting about your work is that when you create it, you create it as if you're already gone, as if you're not here anymore. Um, as a way of, you know, implementing agency in your work so that if it's presented in the future, other people aren't making decisions of how the objects would be presented. Uh, this is a very, very clever way of uh, preparing your work. Do you think this is a practice that more creators and artists should adopt to help solve these questions that come up about um, presenting other people's works and objects who are no longer here? I think at least with contemporary works uh, as an author is probably better to understand early on than, you know, every author is going to be gone at, to su at some point. And then uh, there are multiple peoples that will, you know, make parts of the work in the future, like conservators or curators or registrars or the public or um, multiple uh stakeholders for that material that you essentially are just the beginning of uh, of course your name gets put in the front of the house type of front type but you know someone else is deciding a lot of things for that work already and so i when i think about works i try to i try to make them as if they're their own actually like their own person you know i tr i talk to my works in the studio same as antiquities you know it's like what type of personality does it have? Where does it want to be? Like, and in that way, I sort of bypass my own like day-to-day -day anxieties or whatever. That's like, oh, I have to make this like shinier or whatever. And the object's like, no, I'm not that type of work. You know, I'm very serious and I'm going to be serious face when I'm not <laughs> necessarily like that. But to some degree, it's not that I'm completely gone all the way. It's more like it becomes a collaborative effort. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned there about sort of personhood and putting this personhood back into objects. When we think about this transition of a person into an object, 
let's say, for example, the two of you were to be one day displayed in a museum or a gallery in the same way that we have with these, you know, ancient Egyptian funerary objects, how would you exactly like to be presented (laughs) and what aspects of yourself would be important to maintain throughout that transition? I mean, this is a bit of a silly question, but, you know, it's just good to kind of get us thinking about what agency we'd like to give to objects in this way. So whoever would like to start. So that's an interesting question. Um, I think something that could allow for some ambiguity, something that to give the idea that the story hasn't ended here. I don't know. I think I'd be a bit of a sad, a sad display. <laughs> I think about death all the time, you know, because I think about bequests a lot and future plans. So they're always changing to some degree. But, you know, current version is basically like get planted under a tree and then the tree will eat my body or whatever. But if I had to be in the museum as a display, I would want to be rotting corpse. <laughs> <laughs> because that's my plan. So, I, you know, it's actually really interesting, this question, because the regulation for the boundary <laughs> when a person becomes old enough to become an object changes depending on what country you're in. You know, because one of the questions that I had was, you know, a freshly dead person, you would never put in a display like you do <laughs> old people, you know, really old dead people, no? And so I'm like, when does a dead person become old enough to become like displayable <laughs> and not like cemetery type you no know? and it is interesting because it comes down to a lot of policy like i was in italy a couple of months ago and the regulation the cutoff line is pre world war 1 then is an antique post world war 1 it's a corpse but there's a caveat because unless it was like dead person from mm-hmm. a crime then it could be like brought back and so this very interesting like policy loop you know acrobatics to uh figure that out no definitely uh, but to me because i plan to you know be eaten by worms i would like to still be doing that if i have to be on display <laughs> noted so we've got some evidence here just in case either one of you are ever needed on display <laughs> i think I'd, I'd like to be sort of haunting it in some sort of way sound wave in the museum through like the ventilation or something oh yeah and um well i guess i guess think thinking about you know your artistic practice james and sound in itself um the last question i'll ask for today for our um podcast episode is you know thinking about the presentation of objects um by museums and galleries personally i find that kind of the crux of the issue can often arise around religiosity and belief systems. So, you know, when we're talking about these ancient Egyptian funerary objects, for example, or we're talking about an item of religious clothing and and, and how we present these. In your exhibition, which was called Prayer, which was originally presented in Western Cape in 2000, just five years after the apartheid, you collected the sound recordings of prayer from a series of religions and new religious movements, paganism, Catholicism, Hinduism and Judaism, just to uh, name a few. Ultimately, this piece held the purpose of bringing together various voices of different communities as a symbol of, you know, new beginnings and unity. A really, really, really brave and bold move to present so many different, you know, religions together in one space and something that you did so, so respectfully. So I would ask you, do you have any personal suggestions for galleries and museums uh, from that experience in how to display a multitude of religious objects together in one shared space. I suppose here's also the, the difference between a contemporary museum and a more encyclopedic museum with the, the artwork prayer, which, like a series of personal questions, is remade in each time, each city, each version. I think with that, the respect and the practice came out of an idea. I had to declare my intentions to all concerned. It gives context to the artwork. And again, which I suppose is an element of my work, is I had to ask for it for help and advice. And I think it shouldn't go wrong <laughs> with, with those as, uh, as ways of working. Well, I think they're also good beginnings. None of us have all the answers ourselves. And for museums, I think um, you won't go wrong by including others and more communities in your discussions and on your radars. Who knows? We have to just trial and error, see how it goes keep apologizing, (laughs) keep trying your best. One last one that I'd like to fit in, and again, open to both of you. On the topic of restitution, 
There are a lot of debates about the digitization of artworks, objects, and artifacts. Some of those taking a more Walter Benjamin approach, you know, thinking that they completely shut off to digitizing objects and uh, artwork on the basis that it loses its aura or its presence. And that was something you spoke about a bit earlier, Gala, this, this aura of when you go to see something in a museum. What are both of your thoughts on this? And, you know, how can we strive to maintain this aura or presence of an object of historical importance whilst also remaining respectful to who those objects should return to? I think in this, essentially it's just, again, case-by-case way of approaching it and it's just listing out who are all of the stakeholders for each individual object because it's not only in the practical ones it could be like spiritual stakeholders or animal stakeholders or post-human apocalyptic stakeholders like listing all of those people out or entities not even people just who what are all of the things that would care depending on how you know this material is living or presented or however, no? And I think that an aura is just from our human living point of view because like the mold is looking for a different type of exhibition. The spirits are looking for a different type of exhibition. And so I was actually thinking like if I was a curator, the mold curator of a collection, this would be totally different and the most aura would be like the most delicious looking object that has nothing, you know, like paper goods or whatever, Mm -hmm. no? But I think that's what that uh, might be. How can we maintain those feelings for the multitude of stakeholders of that material? Okay, thank you. And James, what are your thoughts on this? I think Ghana said it so elegantly. <laughs> I, I think, again, it's context-related. I mean, the digitizing of objects, I mean, people would be able to understand it's a digitized version mm-hmm. uh, they shouldn't worry too much about that. Um, Gali, you had such a lovely thought earlier, like many, about sort of what um, what constitutes the object. So I think that's another thing to bring into this discussion. And yeah, context, and just keep trying to do our best. Great. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This has been a really, really enjoyable and fascinating discussion. Thanks. Yeah. It was thank really great. All. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. Special thanks to our guests on this episode, Gala Porres Kim and James Webb. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature and much more both in our institute on Exhibition Road and online. You can find out more on our website at goethe.de forward slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Heffman. I've been your host, Lucy Rowan.